Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 288 Mindfulness is More Than Just Paying Attention. We're joined this week by Dr. Ronald Purser to discuss the limitations of mindfulness in corporate settings and how Buddhist philosophy can inform organizational theory and practice. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today live over Google Hangout. This is our first live Google Hangout interview, so very excited to be joined by our guest today, uh, Dr. Ronald Purser. Uh, Ron, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with the Buddhist Geeks and to explore with us. It's a pleasure to be here, Vincent. Yeah, it's a pleasure to see you. This is the first time I've done a live interview where I can actually see who I'm talking to uh, in terms of online. Yeah, I think it makes a big difference. It does. Cool. So I just wanted to start by sharing a little bit uh, of your background, and then we can actually go deeper into it um, and explore a little bit of kind of what you're bringing to the table and, and what your background is. Sure. So, so just to start, you're a professor now of management at San Francisco State University, and your scholarship and research and writing has sort of focused recently on organizational mindfulness, uh, mindfulness in corporate settings, and how Buddhist philosophy can inform organizational theory and practice. Because that's a very interesting uh, confluence, you know, organizational uh, management and Buddhist philosophy. I'd be curious to hear kind of what your background is uh, in, in both sides of that of that coming together. Sure. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on Buddhist Geek. So I've become a real fan uh, over the last uh, year or so. Thank you. Um, well, I received my doctorate uh, in organizational behavior. Um, I think it was in 1990 at Case Western Reserve University. And that's, that's an interesting field because it is very uh, interdisciplinary. It sort of is a combination of organizational uh, behavior, organizational psychology, social psychology, industrial relations, organization development. Um, and I was a Buddhist even before I entered graduate school, I mean, going back to 1981. Um, so this has always been in the background uh, of my professional uh, interest and career, but it's only like in the last two or three years that I've been able to sort of uh, integrate or shift my professional focus to try to, to bring together my, my lifetime interest and in practice of Buddhism uh, into the real world of organizational development and uh, what's happening right now in terms of the interest uh, among many businesses and corporations and with the mindfulness movement. But I, I guess it's it's been a life it's been a career struggle uh because i've i've sort of kept it in the background and you know if we look now what's happening uh mindfulness in cor in the corporate world is is wide open it's it, it's become mainstream almost so when i started to see that trend develop i said you know i really need to just completely fully apply my professional energies to 
seeing how the Buddha Dharma can actually inform the way we organize in society. What, what sort of benefits can we bring from the Buddha Dharma into organizational theory and organizational practice? So it's been very uh, inspirational for me. It's kind of a whole new phase of uh, creativity. Uh, very excited. Nice. And you said you actually got into Buddhism before you got into the into graduate schools. How how did you get introduced to it, and and what what sort of has your trajectory been in that in that space? <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. granted, we, we don't we don't have yeah. I know it's just a in, brief in a, uh, in a short. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to make a long story short, um, well, you know, as a as a late teenager, uh, you know, I started dabbling by reading books by Alan Watts, like many of us. And, things like that. But it wasn't until I was around 28 years old or so uh, that I seriously, you know, took the plunge. And the Nigma Institute in, in uh, Berkeley, California, uh, Tarthang Tuku's Institute, is really was my first uh, entry. Uh, and uh, that was actually interesting because it started more uh, with his more secular vision, which was uh, known as Time, Space, and Knowledge, uh, the series of books that he offered to the West, which he adamantly says is not Buddhist. But I, I had a lot of other Buddhist things going on at Nigma. And then uh, 1985, when I went to graduate school in Cleveland, the only uh, Buddhist center there was a uh, – uh, actually, it was the Buddhist Churches of America. Uh, but uh, the uh, the sensei there, sensei uh, – uh, Ogui uh, had a Zen center uh, in the evening for, for the American Western students. So that was around 1985 and uh, took my uh, formal Zen precepts at that time. Okay. So I've had a number of Zen teachers since then and uh, also uh, participated in a number of retreats with Chokinima and some other uh, uh, Nigma and Kagyu uh, Vajrayana teachers. Okay. Okay, cool. And then it sounds like at some point as the mindfulness and corporate space thing was taking off, you decided to actually bring that into the foreground of your work with the organizational stuff. That's, that's neat. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I remember reading an article in 2006 in a journal in my field that was actually trying to explicitly bring in uh, what they called Eastern, uh, but it was definitely a Buddhist uh, uh concepts from the RB Dharma and so forth. Uh, this particular journal was, was trying to uh, import uh, Buddhist concepts into a theory of organizational mindfulness. And I, I remember reading it 2006, and then finally I, I decided to, to do something, and, and that's when I wrote this particular article now. Okay. Uh, which uh, is actually meant as sort of a response to that article. Okay, cool. And, you know, I was really struck by this article and also by the general kind of need to critique this exploding trend. I mean, everyone that's watching this show knows that mindfulness practices, things like MBSR, uh, MBCT, have become incredibly popular. Uh, as you put in the article, they've become exponentially popular. Um, in the last uh, several years. And that doesn't seem to be a trend that's going to be slowing down anytime soon. Lisa's no, and I, I think it's, it's wonderful that uh, MBSR and MBCT uh, have uh, gotten the attention that uh, they have in the clinical and hospital 
settings. Uh, I mean, it's wonderful what they've done. My critique is not necessarily uh, aimed at MBSR. It's more that that's not all there is uh, to mm. mindfulness. And, you know, I think people even that have been on Buddhist Geeks, like uh, Dave, uh, Dave Vago and uh, Willoughby Britton, I mean, they're, they're really on the leading edge, too, of seeing that uh, we really need to go beyond which these, you know, the operational definitions that have sort of dominated the clinical psychology and even the neuroscience field based on more of an, uh, what I would consider the limited uh, conception of mindfulness. And uh, that, that's really what I was really after is, is to try to expand our knowledge uh, and our perspective on mindfulness and see how it is really uh, embedded and, and contextualized within a highly integrated system of ethical and soteriological uh, principles. Okay, cool. And, you know, reading the article in the abstract, which is sort of spelling out, okay, here's what's going to come in the next 40 pages. Um, yeah. There is one line in particular that I thought was very interesting, and I wanted to see if we could unpack it a little bit. And you've already kind of gotten into uh, a little mm -hmm. bit of what I wanted to explore with you, which is you and your co-author wrote that mindfulness divorced from its uh, soteriological or, or liberative context can be reduced to self-help technique that's easily misappropriated for self-preservation, employee pacification, and mm -hmm. maintenance of toxic cultures. Yeah. So <laughs> that's a strong statement, obviously. And uh, I was wondering if you could say a bit more, starting with what you were just speaking about, which is what is uh, mindfulness in terms of how you're using that term uh, for the purposes of this article? And how is that different from the way that we often popular, uh, in a popular context, understand mindfulness, you know, uh, like the way that John Kabat-Zinn is using it or it's used in, in sort of the Western secular context? Well, yeah, I think that what... I'm trying to do is to recontextualize mindfulness and because as you have mentioned, the, the current uh, discourse uh, is sort of narrowly focused on uh, what I term attention enhancement. Uh, that is sort of how we have come to view mindfulness. It's not the only uh, aspect of it. But it is a fairly narrow conception, and um, I'm really drawing more uh, directly from uh, Buddhist canonical sources, directly uh, from the Satipat Maha Satipatthana Anapasati Suttas, um, and trying to shift that discourse away from just some sort of instrumentalized view of mindfulness. I mean, really, if we uh, really look at uh, the issue here, we have to think about mindfulness not as a technique. Uh, I think the, the phrase now is mindfulness, you know, it's a technique. And the reason why it's a technique is because it has become decontextualized from its uh, uh, ethical context. And I think one of the misconceptions or common misconceptions is that mindfulness is devoid of any kind of judgment or discrimination. And uh, I think that, there, of course, there are times in practice where there is non-judgment or non-reactive, uh, uh, non-reactivity to the contents of arising of experience. But 
I think what we're talking about is that the quality of mindfulness is sati is also combined with sampajana, which uh, often is translated as clear comprehension uh, or clear knowing, which kind of implies a self-monitoring, kind of a self-awareness or discrimination of one's motivations and whether one is uh, actually developing wholesome uh, qualities. One of the issues is that if we look at the definition of uh, MBSR, for example, it differs dramatically from the canonical definitions of mindfulness. If you don't mind, could I read a quick quote from uh, Bhikkhu Thanissaro? Absolutely. Okay, Bhikkhu Thanissaro, um, I think he really sums it up quite nicely because um, it says one of the <clears throat> most striking features of mindfulness as taught in the modern world is how far it differs from the canon's teachings on right mindfulness. And instead of being a function of memory, which sati sort of has connotations of recollection and memory, I'm sort of ad-libbing here, it's depicted primarily in some cases purely as a function of attention to the present moment. And instead of being purposeful, it is without an agenda. And instead of making choices, it's depicted as being choiceless and without preferences. And I thought, wow, that that really struck me when I read that. Um, you know, I think another term that is possibly causing some confusion in the way it's used is the term bare attention. And, you know, Bhikkhu Bodhi actually... Uh, had something to say about this too in one of the articles in Contemporary Buddhism, a special issue. And he said the problem with bare attention, it was initially, you know, meant uh, to be used more as a pedagogical device to help people get a flavor of, of mindfulness. Uh, but he never intended it to be, you know, a real concrete operational factor in the, in the definition of mindfulness. And so what happens is, is that bare attention is often conflated with manisakara, which uh, is a, in the uh, Abhidharma is a universal mental factor of attention, which is uh, ethically neutral. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, yeah, well, you know, if we're only talking about attention, uh, we could have concentrated attention. The sniper can benefit from bare attention or a uh, high degree of concentration. And, and so we kind of lose the uh, ethical side of mindfulness by this decontextualization uh, of, of the uh, definition. Okay, great. So, so there's an, uh, a way in which the ethical dimensions lost. And then there's also, uh, which is kind of looking at it as a value-free practice or technique. And then there's also the, the kind of uh, liberative dimensions seems to be lost in, in, in how he's describing that, where we're no longer sort of looking at our own motivation while we're paying attention and seeing, you know, what, what, what things are we strengthening and what things are we actually looking to, uh, to let go of or, or, or not cultivate or, or develop. And so that's, that's kind of interesting, the... Uh, the difference there it's pretty clear and I've, I've heard other you know teachers and people uh, speak about this ken mcleod alan wallace many people have written about um the difference in in those terms and how they're used yeah absolutely right uh i i really 
admire all of the all of those writings by the people you've mentioned, and they've informed my my thinking as well. Yeah, I, I think that we actually lose the the wider view if we view mindfulness as some sort of instrumentalized technique. Even 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 if we view it more as a technique for just even improving our mental health or physical health, we lose the, the wider liberative uh, dimension of mindfulness or purpose and function of mindfulness. And so I think that we have to, you know, back up a bit and, and think about why uh, in the Eightfold Path uh, was mindfulness differentiated qualitatively between right and wrong mindfulness, not, not in a moralistic sense. But samasati, right mindfulness, it's really characterized by the quality of attention that's brought to bear on experience and, and in one's actions. So it's a distinct quality of attention that's deliberately cultivated, supported by the integrated uh, sense of ethical development that, uh, of course, the Buddhist uh, path is uh, uh, known for in terms of sila and the ethical training. Um, so in a way, we, we could kind of reframe this as uh, trying to move more towards an ethic-based uh, mindfulness training where the dimension of ethics is uh, brought fully into focus. And I think this is the corrective that we need to overcome mindfulness getting stuck uh, and instrumentalized, commodified, and reduced to a self-help technique. And I think it's worth sort of pointing out that, like at least from what I can hear and what you're saying, is that you're not you're not saying let's go back to uh, and promote a strictly Buddhist understanding of mindfulness. Rather, you're saying let's go back and retouch into that and see what we're missing in our current conception of mindfulness, and, and sort of uh, make some adjustments uh, at least. And granted, you can't change how it's being interpreted by everyone, but you know you can you can you can do things differently if 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 that's the field you're in and that's what you're up to. Does that sound accurate? I mean, I, I yeah, that's absolutely right. I, uh, you know, I'm not in any shape or form, you know, trying to be a Buddhist fundamentalist and saying no, we have to, you know, all become uh, traditional canonical adherence to you know the the canon and any, anything like that but you know there's room for uh development and creativity on how we can reconceptualize mindfulness so that it doesn't just uh become a passing fad i mean that's one of my concerns is that if we look at organizations and corporations uh they're notorious for uh these cycles of fads that come and go and i, I think that there's still time to, you could say, recover or redirect or reclaim uh, this movement in such a way that it doesn't uh, bite the dust because it, uh, it does offer tremendous value to how we can transform, you know, the basic uh, institution of our society where we spend most of our time is in, at the workplace. Mm. So I, I think that... Uh, there's a great opportunity here for us to seriously engage in the discourse in such a way that we can raise questions that we're raising uh, as we are here today. Mm. So going back to this um, sort of 
concern that you have about the ways that mindfulness as it's currently understood and formulated and the way that it's being adopted. I mean, I was recently in San Francisco, you know, for the wisdom 2.0 conference and Mm -hmm. there were thousands of people there and many of them working in businesses and wanting to bring mindfulness into businesses. And, you know, it was very clear that this trend is, is blowing up in in that space in particular. And, you know, uh, having practiced in the Buddhist tradition and done, you know, a lot of meditation, I heard all kinds of things that I I was also concerned about. And one of them that, that you bring up yourself here is, is about mindfulness being used as a way to pacify employees or as a tool that organizations use to, to kind of get more out of their employees in terms of productivity and things like that. Um, right. And I actually, I just want to share a little kind of anecdote from, from my experience at Wisdom because I think it's related to this. And then I also want to hear kind of your thoughts on this, which sure. is while I was there, I noticed um, that narrative was, was quite strong. The narrative that you know mindfulness is a way to enhance productivity for employees to be happier in the workplace that was very public in in the actual conference and I, i'm not saying there's no truth to that but but that right. was the kind of the main narrative and then in private i talked to several people who were sharing stories of folks that they knew directly who had started doing mindfulness or meditation practice and at work and who subsequently quit their jobs uh, within you know days or weeks after starting to train, because it highlighted and, and something for them about how how the systems they were in or or the the experience they were having was dysfunctional, and absolutely, and that was quite different of a of a observation than than the one. It was actually complete opposite to um, the one that I was hearing, you know, sort of being. I think excitedly explored at the conference, and I found those two different narratives, you know, in direct kind of competition. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit about this this whole notion of uh, of pacifying employees, as opposed to it being something that you know may lead to them actually quitting the workplace if it's if the systems that they're in are dysfunctional and they're working eighty hours a week or whatever. Yeah, I, I think that's very interesting, and I I, I mentioned in the paper actually uh, a similar. Uh, fad that was called the human relations movement back in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. It was often derogatorily uh, referred to as cow psychology by its critics. And and basically, uh, the human relations movement was teaching supervisors how to sort of be like uh, warm and fuzzy counselors uh, to their employees. And so they would, you know, ask them their concerns and, and everything. And then employees would basically feel a lot better, but go right back to the same exact uh, work environment. Nothing actually changed whatsoever. And so that's, you know, not something new in the corporate world. And and I think this is really what I think in terms of how um, we basically shift the burden onto the employee. I mean, okay, we need to reduce stress. There's a lot of stress, certainly in the workplace. And so let's give them this privatized individualistic training called uh, stress reduction or mindfulness Uh, because it's really, you know, your problem and, 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 you know, we really need to get you to adapt and have you cope as effectively as possible in the existing corporate culture. But there's really no questioning of, you know, why is there so much stress in that corporate culture to begin with? 
we don't really look at the collective sources of distress uh, and, and harmful uh, corporate cultures, toxic corporate cultures that are the reason why we have to have so much uh, mindfulness practice in corporations. So this is sort of colonization is the word or you know, exploitation may be too strong. But it certainly requires this uncoupling of mindfulness from its, from its ethical context. And when you do that, what happens, it turns it into kind of this highly privatized technique. It becomes a way to actually pacify anxiety and stress. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. We, I mean, everybody uh, can benefit from it, but it doesn't address the sources of, of what David Loy would consider are institutionalized uh, social dukkha or the uh, institutionalized greed or institutionalized ill will, institutionalized delusion. And, and I think that's where we really need to expand our thinking is, you know, sanghas, you know, Buddhist sanghas were there for a reason. In a sense, they were the laboratory for how we can uh, go beyond ourselves, not cultivate uh, ourself even further and, and enhance our sense of uh, self-importance. Uh, and, and so in a way, this is kind of perpetuating almost like a religion of the self. Uh, it becomes very privatized. It's almost kind of very, maybe even perpetuating, you know, the consumerist uh, lifestyle. It kind of reminds me in a way, this may be a bit of a far stretch, but almost of the prosperity religions that we saw uh, U.S. Uh, televangelist, you know, if you if you follow this, you know, you're going to be more prosperous. In a way, it's not that far stretched because mindfulness is often sold as a, a way to enhance your career success, uh, a way to become more focused, and everything is focused more on how you can get ahead, you know, or how you will be able to fit into the existing corporate culture. And, and to me, that is really a fundamental sort of refashioning of, of mindfulness. It's, it's, you know, moving away from its liberative uh, function and purpose. Okay. Okay. Interesting. I, w- I want to take this because it, I think as I listen to you, there's one thing I, I keep noticing I, I have trouble with, which is mm-hmm. that so there's a critique of the way we've refashioned mindfulness, but there's not a, you're not saying that we shouldn't refashion mindfulness because one of the aspects you talked about that David Loy, you know, mentions the sense of social dukkha, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to address social dukkha, you know, if we go back to the canonical sources and stuff like that, and I'm no academic myself, yeah. but I, I've looked at it enough to realize original sort of source Buddhism was not primarily looking at transforming social institutions there was a little bit of that going on, uh, right. obviously, but in the same way, there wasn't really a, a language or a lens for understanding systems and cultures and things like that. All of this has sort of developed in the last few hundred years. So clearly we are refashioning mindfulness even as we talk about it. So the question that I have for you is how do we refashion mindfulness in organizational context? Because I know that's also something that you write about. What What are the ways that we can actually refashion it in a way that is focused on the sort of uh, alleviation of social uh, injustice or suffering, because that's obviously a really important dimension, especially in, in today's world. Yeah, I agree. And 
I think one of the, the first things is that we have to recognize that, and I think this is just a trend within Western Buddhism itself, is that, you know, Buddhism is often equated with meditation, period. And, you know, that is one of the problems that we're dealing with is that, you know, the Buddha, you know, just didn't teach meditation for the long career that he had. He, he, he did teach a form of social ethics. And there was a lot more that he was teaching besides mindfulness. And I think a lot of people forget that fact. But I think uh, the fundamental issue here is when we try to narrowly extract uh, uh, mindfulness, uh, which is embedded in a very integrated uh, system of uh, psycho-spiritual development, uh, we lose the whole emancipatory capacity that it was intended behind uh, this uh, beautiful approach. And it wasn't just uh, to be more well health, more healthy, happy, and so forth. But I mean, we're really talking about uh, a much uh, greater vision of an awakened society. So we have to think creatively. And I was thinking about this last night a bit is that, um, is there's a tension, I think, an ongoing tension between tradition and innovation. Uh, and we have to hold that tension. Uh, in a way, they're, they're opposites. And uh, we can't go in either extreme. I think this is kind of a middle path of how we can refashion uh, mindfulness for social systems. And one of the things I think is that what I'm calling uh, in the paper is a concept I'm trying to, to develop is called high wisdom organizations, HWOs. And it's a way to think about mindfulness, not just as an individualized uh, practice, but a way to extend that to all of the organizational processes and practices that uh, are part of a corporate culture. So by doing that, we, we widen the scope to look at the collective sources of distress and suffering that David Lloyd calls social dukkha or institutionalized dukkha, uh, systemic dukkha. And so uh, we look at what I refer to as mindful organizing processes. And these are ways of how do, can we de-automatize our habitual routines and organizations, which sort of seem normal because we've never really become uh, clear about them. And maybe that kind of relates to the uh, story you told of why some of the people who started practicing quit because they suddenly, you know, started to awaken and, and feel this more sensitively that the suffering that they were embedded in. Mm. And so, you know, high wisdom organizations is kind of a new intervention. I think that we need to develop that's really grounded in a strong ethical intentions in terms of what, what the vision is of, of what we're considering uh, healthy organizations or virtuous organizations, if you want to call it that. Uh, I don't want to get into all of the details of the theoretical aspects of it, but uh, certainly we, we need to move away from seeing mindfulness as merely a technique for self-fulfillment at the expense of ignoring all the suffering that's happening within the corporation or within a social system. And so 
you know, in this sense, mindfulness is not just a way to help individuals cope or adapt or accommodate or even accept a dysfunctional culture or home or more harmful social environments. So I don't think this is going to happen overnight, but certainly I think that there are people besides me that are starting to think in these terms. Of course, the, the movement that we're dealing with is so oriented towards uh, self self-cultivation rather than uh seeing yeah you know what i'm saying yeah i i do i mean um in many ways that's the context in which i've been most of my practice and being exposed to people like david and uh and others outside of the buddhist context it's you know sort of bringing that other dimension the social dimension in um which i think is really it's really important not just in the sense of sort of letting go of, of our sort of self-preoccupation because that can become a self-preoccupation yeah. <laughs> to let go of our own self-preoccupation, but just right. simply because that's what's needed. Um, it's what's needed in the world. And what I hear you saying is uh, in some ways there's this, there's this, there are these deeper cultural trends that once we become aware of, once we make an object, which happens, you know, through our own individual awareness, but it also happens in a societal way that then we, we have a sort of, obligation in some sense to respond to those things and to actually change them as opposed to like like you're saying use this technique as a way to uh, with bare attention accept uh, that that's the way things are so i i think what you're saying is really uh, it's a really powerful I, I think it shouldn't be understated you know how important that that statement is um in the sense that it's a it's also a societal practice of transformation so i i, I just wanted to you know, just say that, that it, it is really important uh, what you're saying, I think. Yeah. And I think that it really, it really comes down to this, this notion of uncoupling mindfulness again, because what happens is you know, it becomes very myopic and we, we limit the scope or the breadth of, of the potential of transformation. And so this rush towards, seeing it as a self self-help technique really just glosses over the uh, ethical dimensions that really fuel the transformative potential uh, of this uh, practice so when it's focused strictly on the individual uh, i think it's that's when it becomes more technocratic in its usage so rather than like throwing the baby out with the bathwater i really think that we have to to look at what happens when that occurs, because then it becomes a very compartmentalized uh, uh, practice. And in that case, the benefits are only stress reduction and improved attention when we compartmentalize it like that. Mm. Um, So I think we have a lot of work to do. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology, 
through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.